0: Hi, everyone. We're going to be taking a break this week for the 4th of July holiday so we can spend some time with our family and friends celebrating America. I'll be with my husband and my two little ones making s'mores, supervising sparklers, and making my famous watermelon beverage.
1: Yeah, while Michelle is chilling out at home. I'm going to be uptown, downtown, all around town. We're going to be doing some live band karaoke. We're going to be at the, and Michelle you know this, and, and you're not going to be there, but the Heritage Foundation has this massive 4th of July party where we watch the fireworks from the rooftop. Um, it's going to be a really really great time to celebrate with our friends and family. I can
0: never keep my kids up late enough to get here.
1: <laughs> I can only imagine what the ride home is like. It's, it's like the sugar buzz is wearing off yes. and yeah and I you're can, in <laughs>
0: traffic for hours and hours
1: trying to get back out yeah that's a good that's a very very good point
0: so we did want to share this important episode with you in case you missed it the senate just passed the defense authorization act also known as the ndaa which authorizes spending and provides a pretty broad policy outline for the pentagon The House still needs to take up its version of the NDA later this month, and the question always remains, are we spending too much or not enough? On this episode, we dive into how strong our military actually is and where we have what we need and where there's risk.
1: And I I love this episode, Michelle, because it provides a perfect contrast to last week's episodes that we did on Iran, talking about how important it is that we have a strong, capable military ready to go at any point to defend our interests abroad.
0: Okay, so to all of our new listeners, we know you're there, and we just want to say thank you so much for listening, and we hope you have a great Fourth of July holiday.
1: Yeah, this really is a great time of the year to pause and reflect on the incredible blessing that America is for all of us. So, again, we hope you have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week with a brand new explainer.
0: Foundation. I'm Michelle Cordero, and this is Heritage Explains.
2: Deterrence means simply this, making sure any adversary who thinks about attacking the United States or our allies or our vital interests concludes that the risks to him outweigh any potential gains. Once he understands that, he won't attack. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression.
0: Stakes were high in the Cold War era, and the idea of nuclear war was very real and frightening. Thankfully, back then, America had the troops, equipment, and the powerful allies it needed to confront the Soviet expansionism on multiple fronts while still keeping lesser threats at bay. But today, according to Heritage's index of U.S. military strength, the military is one-third smaller. And though we have more advanced weaponry, we're operating in a world that's just as dangerous as what we faced during the Cold War, and in many cases, more complex. For years, our own generals have been warning us that our military is running on empty
2: we simply cannot take the readiness of our force for granted. If we do not have the resources to train and equip the force, our soldiers, our young men and women, are the ones who will pay the price, potentially with their lives. It is our responsibility, the Department of Defense and Congress, to ensure that we never send soldiers into harm's way that are not trained, equipped, well-led, and ready for any contingency to
0: include war. Tanks, ships, and jets, just like a car, for example, only last so long. Not to mention the military must also account for technologies that move at a rapid pace. Thankfully, the military recently received a long needed boost. Rebuilding America's military. President Trump unveiled the administration's 2019 budget proposal yesterday. It includes more than $686 billion in military spending. Among the earmarks, funds to modernize equipment, buy 10 new combat ships, as well as bump in production for the F 35 and the F A 18 aircrafts. In the budget, uh, we
2: took care of the military like it's never been taken care of before. In fact, General Mattis called me, he goes, wow, I can't believe I got everything we wanted. I said, that's right, but we want no excuses. We want we want you to buy twice, okay, twice what you thought for half the price. Our military was totally depleted and we will have a military like we've never had before.
0: So where does our military stand now after that boost? Heritage has just released its 2019 Index of Military Strength, the only non-governmental and only annual assessment of its kind. Dakota Wood, who served America for two decades in the United States Marine Corps, is a senior research fellow for defense programs and the editor of the Index. Thank you so much for joining us, Dakota.
2: Oh, it's wonderful. Thanks for having me.
0: So good news or bad news this year, how strong is our military right now?
2: Well, if you had a, a through F grading scale, we're going to give it a C. So a scale of three on one to five. We, we call it marginal because we think the mission of the military being to protect America and its interests is pretty important, right? So if you're pulling in a C on that report card, you know, it's kind of marginal. I mean, we'd very much like it to be better. So some, some gains over the past year, but still a long way to go.
0: So at a 101 level, can you tell us what, what that marginal rating means?
2: Sure. Uh, history is everything in, in this kind of business. So what we did was we've looked over uh, a half century or more of major wars that the U.S. has been involved in. We said how much military was needed to fight and win one of those wars. You'd like to be able to do that. And because America is a global power with global interests, we've got interests in Europe, in the Middle East, in the Asia-Pacific region, If all you had was enough to fight and win one war and it took everything that you had, then you wouldn't be able to address interest anywhere else in the world. So that marginal score, uh, our assessment is the current U.S. military could fight and win one major war, but it would be globally sourced. In other words, you'd have to take the whole military from everywhere it's at in the world and concentrate it in one place, and you wouldn't have anything left over to do anything else. And so we say the American military needs to have the capacity to do two major wars because that allows you to do one and then all the other things that you're wanting to do on a daily basis.
0: So it seems over the past decade or so, it's been really hard to get additional funding for our military. Uh, But Congress under the Trump administration recently did bump up defense spending. Can you help explain a little why we aren't where we need to be then if we're getting additional funding.
2: If you looked at the uh, pace of inflation and you took, let's say, a 1985 dollar and you put it into today's dollar and you just went up for inflation, we're spending today in constant dollars uh, about the same that you would have been spending on the defense budget during the Ronald Reagan presidency. And that's always kind of the high watermark, you know, for folks who are interested in defense. Unfortunately, the cost of manpower like health care – the cost of the equipment that we need to use because of advances in technology that our enemies would be using, uh, the increase of those costs is about 4 or 5% above the rate of inflation. So just like if you were getting a pay raise in line with inflation, you'd think everything is good to go. But if your health care expenses or the price of a a gallon of gasoline is above inflation— you're actually losing ground. So what we've seen over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years, manpower, healthcare, munitions, uh, the airplanes that are needed today to fight in a modern battle environment, those have all dramatically come in above the rate of inflation. And so these additional expenditures you've talked about just haven't allowed us to keep pace with that. And we're actually losing ground over time. As you use the military, it's wearing things out. You need to replace them. And so these... Costs have been increasing over the last decade or two.
0: So talking more a little bit about our country's history of defense spending. Um, so you're saying there was a certain point during the Reagan administration when it seems to be where we're at pace with now, even though it's not equal. Are there highs and lows that we, we've experienced?
2: Yeah, w- when, when we're in a big war. So when there's World War II, I mean, the whole country's in, right? But uh, Korea, Vietnam, a desert storm, we ramp up to, in order to be able to win that war. As soon as the war is over, everybody wipes their brow and says, I want to get back to actual living. And so you see this dramatic decline in spending after these periods. So during the Cold War, because we were up against the Soviet Union on a global basis, there was kind of this rationale of, of kind of having some steady funding, you know, to have the people and equipment, uh, trained personnel in many places of the world. When the Soviet Union collapsed uh, there toward the end of the 80s, early 90s, uh, really, Uh, That was facilitated by Ronald Reagan saying the post-Vietnam military, which had really fallen into decline, we're going to build that back up so we've got a really strong force that buttresses our diplomatic initiatives and these other sorts of things. Soviet Union collapse, the happy decade of the 90s, there is no even near-peer competitor anywhere in the world. Then we had 9-11 that happened, and so that lack of expenditures during the 1990s The military we had at kind of the bottom of that bathtub was thrown into constant combat operations. And it's been on an operational footing for the last 18 years. I mean, 17, 18 years.
0: So
2: lots of wear and tear. Lots of wear and tear. So even if you have an airplane flying over Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria, if it never drops a bomb on anybody, you're still flying the airplane. And airplanes are built for a certain number of flight hours, and then they're just done, Right. So we've been flying these planes, sailing ships, deploying people, and it's wearing out the force. And the amount of funding we've applied against it just has not kept pace with the workload that we've placed on the military. Made worse when we had the Budget Control Act in 2011. I don't know if the listeners may recall, but the idea was to find a little over a trillion dollars in savings across the federal budget. And so the poison pill was if you don't come into an agreement, use super committee from both parties – Uh, We're going to cut defense spending dramatically, and it's supposed to be so painful that it motivates you to find these other savings. So the super committee failed to find the savings. These intentionally injurious or painful cuts were applied to the military. At the same time, it's operationally employed in in the Middle East and in uh, South Asia. So it's had this double whammy of constantly being worked, and yet its funding has been uh, cut pretty severely. It got so bad that both parties have had bipartisan budget agreements and bumped up funding in these kind of two-year increments. But again, it's kind of to the, the stem the bleeding, uh, but not allowing them to really get healthy. Now, a little bit of a difference is we pulled out of Iraq, much reduced in Afghanistan, so there's a bit of breathing room. Additional money that was made available in 2018 and the next year for 2019 is helping them to get a bit healthier in maintenance, readiness, replenishing munitions, bombs and bullets, those sorts of things. But that agreement comes to an end after 2019 and we go back to those really painful cuts. So it's going to require Congress to really search their hearts, I think, and and decide what kind of military we need to have.
0: So You've recently wrote that our military is facing challenges that are dramatically different than it's faced in the past. What are some of the major differences in the challenges that we face aside from budgeting and aging equipment?
2: Right. So, you know, a global competition against the Soviet Union up through the 80s and in the early uh, 1990 uh, timeframe, nothing in the 1990s in terms of big competitors. And then it was just counter-terror operations and counterinsurgency operations post 9-11. And the last couple of years, you've seen Russia come back like bangbusters onto the global scene. You've seen China trying to use its wealth to really militarize its presence in the Asia-Pacific region. So Cold War days, we had one capital to deal with. That was Moscow. Today, you've got a very aggressive Russia. So we've got Moscow there again. You've got uh, Beijing with China. Uh, They'll have a 350-ship fleet uh, sailing the South China Sea and East China Sea here in just about two years. And you've got a nuclear North Korea, which didn't exist some years ago. And you also have Iran, which is sponsoring uh, various terror groups in the Middle East and causing all kinds of mayhem. So it's a very complicated world in many parts, many different regions. And the military has really been stretched in to do current operations. And just, I guess, another reference point, Cold War, the Army was 780,000 active duty soldiers. Today it's 480,000. 550 ships back then, we have 285 today. So those are just a few little reference points of how small the military has gone, and you got this big world. And it's more complicated with more very capable actors.
0: One third of the size, is, I think, what you reference.
2: In some of the, in some areas, absolutely. Uh, just a year ago, only about a quarter of a, of uh, uh, aircraft in the Marine Corps were even flyable. They've improved that now. It's about half. But still, I mean, half of your airplanes flyable, not even operationally available, right? So you've got the smaller military, two thirds in some areas. Uh, trying to do the workload of a much larger military 20 years ago. And again, with these new technologies, unmanned systems, long-range precision-guided munitions, uh, very sophisticated anti-air defensive systems, it requires modern equipment to deal with that. And yet the Abrams main battle tank was brought in in the 1980s. The Marine Corps' uh, AAV was brought in in 1972. Uh, Average age of ships is in the 20s. Uh, The average age of an aircraft airplane in the Air Force is about 28 years. So it's old equipment. It's being used up on a regular basis. And the few people, relatively speaking, in the military having to shoulder this global burden. That's why we need the additional funding above inflation to get it healthy and to keep it healthy. So we actually deter bad behavior and we don't actually have to go to war.
0: So the index actually um, breaks down each branch of the military, how strong they are, and which branch is the weakest. Which one did the index find they're most worried about? The most
2: worried would be the Marine Corps. I mean, uh, all the uh, Marines, soldiers, sailors, and airmen, they're doing great work. But if I need 100 people and I only have 60, it doesn't matter how good those folks are, they're still going to get worn out. So our weak rating on the Marine Corps really had to do with the capacity, the size of the service relative to the tasks we wanted to fulfill and this old equipment. They're trying to modernize their air arm, but they don't have any new ground uh, vehicles and inventory yet. The other three services are that marginal, that middle rating. And uh, again, plagued by readiness problems. They, they just don't have the funding or the maintainers to repair equipment once it breaks so when you've got broken equipment, you have less equipment that's operational. And then as you're using that more, uh, it wears out faster. So this lack of capacity and lack of adequate money to keep things working really inhibits training and competence and confidence of the force that it knows that it can do what it's being called upon to do.
0: Something else I've seen you write about uh, has to do more with timing and then in the time that it takes to come out with some of these technologies right. that we're competing against. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, the history of major, it calls the MDAP, Major Defense Acquisition Programs. You want to buy a ship or an airplane. These are major things. And and on average, it takes about 15 years to go from the idea, I need this new thing, to when you actually get it into uh, the force and actually use. That's a very long period of time. So if you delay these programs or you had a bad start, it wasn't managed well, or you believe that some new technology that hadn't even been invented yet is actually going to work out as projected, uh, which never happens, uh, then you have, these, these again, these delays at getting a replacement in. So in that delay period, you're using this old equipment. It continues to age. And then like having an old car at home, eventually your maintenance costs start eating up the budget. And you really have to set that aside and get a newer vehicle uh, that's more reliable, less maintenance costs, and, and, and you can have around for a longer period of time. So we're in that old car mode here at the moment where maintenance is just eating the services alive.
0: I think in the index you guys referenced 20, 2050 is when we'd be able to get our naval's fleet where... It needs to be. Yeah, so I mentioned it
2: is uh, under uh, Secretary John Lehman, Secretary of the Navy uh, under the Ronald Reagan uh, years. uh, He was trying to push for a 600-ship Navy, and they got up in the mid-500s. Today we have 285. So the Navy has said um, to operate at some level of risk, but to be able to kind of handle the demands placed on it, uh, they need a a Navy of 355 ships. So going from 285 to 355, and the number of shipyards we have, and the availability of funding to to actually build new ships, even the ones we have designs for, right? It's going to take uh, until the uh, uh, 2035, 2040 time timeframe, or later, to get to that three hundred fifty five ship navy. Uh, when you
0: think about the risks that are, uh, you know, facing oh. the United States on a sometimes week to week basis with everything going on with North Korea, that's a little frightening to think that twenty. 50 would get our Navy to where it needs to be.
2: It is. You know, out of 285 ships, about a third of those are available in any day. So we actually have somewhere around 90. There are about 90 to 100 deployed globally. The ships that are signed to 7th Fleet, which is out in the Western Pacific region, it's about 50, 50 to 60 ships. Uh, China will have 350 in two years. Uh, And then if you're a land power like China is, with those ships, perhaps the ships themselves are less quality, in a sense, of design uh, compared to ours. But the weapons they have on the ships are very sophisticated. And you can use land-based anti-ship cruise missiles and land-based uh, patrol aircraft that also carry anti-ship cruise missiles. So they've got a formidable inventory of equipment, and we have just a small you know, percentage of the fleet that's available at any one time. So you think about the same kind of situation in the North Atlantic and the Baltic relative to Russia— Mediterranean, if you had to come into the Middle East, you know, in support of Israel or something along those lines, the Indian Ocean or getting up to the Persian Gulf. So it's a small fleet that's really stretched. And again, it just wears things out. You, know, you can't keep a ship out at sea indefinitely. It has to come home at some point. And when we have these extended deployments, when it does come home and you finally get it in the yards, it has a lot more repair than what had been the case otherwise. And so it stays in the repair yard longer it means that the next ship in the line isn't getting into the repair yard. So its maintenance woes start to you know, start to build up. So it's kind of this death spiral. And uh, Secretary Mattis, uh, along with the service chiefs, are trying to, to get that fixed, the additional funding. We've been able to make some progress, but not nearly enough to where we need to be. And again, capacity, you know, a larger military is really needed. And again, that's a, just a call for, enough, for more tax dollars.
0: So it sounds like what you're kind of, To round out where we started and where we are now is that um, we have to make sure that Congress has the passion and the people have the passion to keep the spending up where it needs to be so that we're not in a place where we're scared and trying to catch up quickly.
2: It's like an investment plan for a family, right, or carrying insurance. Uh, What you're doing is making these investments against a future problem. And so when you've got a near-term problem, maybe my car broke down or I'd like to have some food on the table or something like that, usually the immediate needs push out future kinds of needs. In the world of military affairs, it takes a long time to grow a force, to train it, to build the equipment that we talked about. It just takes years to do that. So the longer you delay... When the conflict does happen, and it happens every 15 years or so, I mean, you think about World War II, Korea was five years later, Vietnam about 15 years later, 15 years after that or so was Desert Storm, another 10 or 15 for Iraqi freedom. So it's just like clockwork. When you have this delay, you find yourself with a small unready force, and now it's too late, right? You can't build that up. So what we're proposing is that our Congress be a bit more foresighted, And be disciplined and not fritter away the dollars that Americans send in to the Treasury. And that we, for the role of the federal government in this area in particular, constitutional requirement to to provide for the defense and security of the United States, that this is an area where it really needs to be disciplined and it needs to be consistent. And allowing these kind of short-term demands and all sorts of subsidies is really harming the the future and long-term security and stability of the country.
0: Thank you so much, Dakota.
2: Really enjoyed it. Thanks.
0: That's it for today's episode of Heritage Explains, I'll link to Heritage's new index in our show notes on iTunes and on heritage.org. Guys, when it comes to podcasts, liberals have cornered the market on highly produced explainers. Conservatives really need your support. Please jump on iTunes and leave a rating or a comment for Heritage Explains. It really does help. Thank you. And we'll be back next week with a new episode from my co-host, Tim Desher.
1: Heritage Explains
0: is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Descher with editing by Thalia Rampersad.
1: Want to learn how to podcast from some of the best in the business? Then you'll want to register for the Leadership Institute's Conservative Podcasting School on October 15th and 16th in Arlington, Virginia. The Heritage Foundation and The Daily Signal are proud sponsors of this event. Sign up today at leadershipinstitute.org. And as a listener of this podcast, you can get $10 off. Just use book club as the promo code. Can't make it in person? The training will also be streamed live. Again, it's leadershipinstitute.org.